Now, I, I'm just, I'm me wherever I go, and I'm going to be honest from up here, and I, I don't mean to, uh, for this to seem less spiritual, but I'm just, I am who I am. I, I'm a parent, I'm a husband, and I know that children are like one of the things that we pray for in our life until we have them. Right? I mean, like, I love them so much. Like, they're, 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 they're so much in my world. But there are certain times as a parent, if you're not there yet, you'll understand one day. But if you are a parent, you've been here with me, where you're like, where can I get rid of these kids? Like, you just, you, you just need a moment alone. And so you go to the bathroom and you shut the door and there's fingers under the door like, Dad, I need another snack. And like, just 30 seconds. And there's these times where it's like these blessings can like start to feel like curses. It's true with your spouse as well sometimes. I mean, I know it's hard to imagine, but I know I've got on my wife's nerves at least once this morning already. Like it, it happens, right? I mean, there, there are things that's like we, we want to get married so much and then we have the person. And there's times where it's like we don't see them with the value that we should. It's true of so many things. It's true of cars. It's true of houses. These things, it's like, oh, I just want this so much. And then when we have it, it's very easy to become complacent towards it, isn't it? I mean, this is, a, this is a general feeling that we've all felt, that we've all seen, and it's so true of so many things across the spectrum. It's definitely true about the things of God as well. Like, there are times where, where we start off so passionate about our faith, and then it's like, oh, but uh, it, there's costs, there's difficulties, there's challenges, there's people there, and people can be annoying sometimes. Like, it's just true. It's like we have these blessings that we can allow to become like curses, like difficult things, when they should be things that enrich our life. And today, I just want to talk about making sure that we treat things with the right respect, because we're going to look at a very specific application, a very specific topic. We're going to get into communion today. Last week, we talked about baptism and the meaning and the importance of baptism. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to have such an exciting baptism service the week after Easter. We have a lot of people who signed up for it, and if you signed up and you haven't heard from me yet, you'll be hearing from me tomorrow. Uh, I'm so excited about the people that we have coming in who are following Christ's commandments on baptism. But communion is one of those things that it's like when we do it, it's often like, ah, the bread could have been better. The juice was too sweet. And it's like, that doesn't matter. <laughs> like, that's not what communion is about, all right? I, I don't, I, I want to be sensitive, but I don't care what you think about the bread. I, think, I care what you think about Jesus, all right? And that's what communion is about. But the, the, the richness and the depth of communion it goes so much further beyond the night that Jesus was betrayed. There, there's a huge backstory to communion that many people don't know, or maybe you haven't studied for a while, and I want to bring some of that out as we, we're going to take communion at the end of service today, and it doesn't matter if you've ever been to our church before, if it's your first time here, you're invited, and if you listen to this message and don't fall asleep, you will understand the parameters for who should take communion, all right? But it, it it goes back, man, I believe it actually goes back to Genesis and a uh, person doing my notes. I'm going to jump around a little bit, so I apologize for making your life difficult after I was like, here's my slides. I'm changing them on the fly now. Um, I'm going to summarize. In Genesis, there's this time where Abram, him and Lot had taken part of the land of Canaan, and, and Lot lived, Lot was his relative, and he lived closer to Sodom, and Abram had taken a place closer to Canaan. 
And while they were there, there was a rebellion of kings who had been, under, had been subject to another king. And, and that, that king decided, I'm going to come and I'm going to put the hammer down. I'm going to steal all their people. I'm going to take all of their wealth since they're rebelling against me. And when this happened, Lot got caught up in that group. And some of Abram's family. Abram would become Abraham later when God changed his name. But at the time, Abram decided and he, and he grabbed all of the fighting trained men that he could and he went and he pursued those who took his family and God gave him victory over them and he brought back all of his family, all of their wealth and in fact wealth from a, a couple different nations and cities, it all got kind of glumped together and so Abram had all of this wealth and as he was coming back, he was met by two kings. One of the kings was the king of Sodom who, who told Abram, you can keep all the stuff, just give me my people back. And he said, no, I'm not going to take wealth from you. Sodom already had a reputation for being a sinful place, and I don't want you to be able to say that, that you're the one who made me rich. And the other king who came out to meet him was Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And he was known as a priest and a king. And it's the only time in scripture where we see someone who was both a priest of God and a king. In fact, a lot of the theologians look at him and because there was no order of priesthood yet, a lot of theologians actually believe that this is the, the churchy word here, Christophany, that this was Jesus in flesh before he was born. There's a couple times in the Old Testament where it's believed that Jesus came and actually spoke and, and, and it was in, in some interactions with people. And this is one of those places where many believe it. And when Melchizedek came out to meet Abram, he brought with him bread and wine. And Abram looked at him and said, I need to give you a tenth of all that I have. And that's where we first see the tithe showing up in scripture. And, it, and it's just one of those noteworthy things that when you talk to a theologian about communion, they'll say, well, the, the roots of it really start with the very first priest that we see in scripture. And Hebrews says that Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek, the, a priest forever. And that, that's where the first connection that gets made, is made. But really the roots of that last supper dinner and the meaning, the place that you really need to go to study it and understand it is the Passover. Now you've probably seen the, you know, the, the story of Joseph, whether it be by Disney or someone else. You've seen it. Hopefully you've just read it in scripture. But if you haven't, the, the basic beginning parameters are Joseph was born into a large family and his brothers were very jealous of him and they sold him into slavery to get rid of him because he was dad's favorite. He got taken all the way to Egypt and he went through some incredibly difficult circumstances. He was a slave. He was accused of things he didn't do. He ended up in prison and then God would raise him up from that, that place in prison to a place of power where he was second only to Pharaoh in the land. And Joseph's wisdom that God gave him led him to create a storehouse of food for a famine that was coming. And so nations and people from all over came to Egypt to get food during a famine. During that time, his brothers came back and Joseph hid a cup amongst his youngest brother that he hadn't met yet so that he could arrest them, maybe punish them, but he ended up showing them mercy. And that's how the whole nation of Israel ended up in, Jew in captivity in Egypt. And so after generations of captivity, there was a Pharaoh who no longer remembered Joseph or cared about them and treated the Israelites very harshly. This is where you're hearing the story, but I need you to begin to pause and feel the story. To be a, a people who grew up as slaves. You have, to, you have to begin to get your heart understanding. What would this feel like to know that there's not really hope of freedom? There's not, there's not hope of making your own choices. There's not, there's not hope of success in your life. You have to work as long as your owner tells you. You have to just begin for a second to understand how 
how terribly Israel yearned for freedom. Because if you don't understand that, you're going to miss a lot of the power and the reality of what they experienced in, the, in, in Egypt. Because when God began to, to raise Moses up to give them freedom, it is an incredible moment in, in, in an entire nation's eyes to, to, to realize that, they, that they've been there for generations now. And they've seen their fathers grow up as a slave and die as a slave. And they begin to expect the same for their children. When God begins to work, you have to understand the power of this moment. For anyone who has ever been in a situation where they feel like it's impossible for me to change this. I've been stuck in this. I've been controlled by this for so long. Where they begin to give up on hopes and dreams. That's where Israel was at. But they had a God who is a redeemer and a savior. And he began to work. And these 10 plagues that God sent on the Egyptians, they weren't just random things. And to us as Americans, we would be like, frogs? Like you're gonna use frogs to convince him to to let the people go? Well, each one of the 10 plagues were actually attacks on the different gods of Egypt. The first plague was was an attack on, on, on Happy, the, the water bearer of Egypt, a goddess who was a god of the river. The second plague where there were frogs that were sent, um, the god Heket in Egypt was the god of fertility. Each one of the plagues that God sent, when it was flies, when it, when it was lice, they were each connected to specific gods that the Egyptians believed in, which was showing the supreme authority of the god of Israel over the gods of Egypt all the way up to the final, most important, most significant, most heartbreaking plague, the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. Now, I don't know if you can begin to just put yourself, of what would it be like to live in this city at this time? Like, like we've been subject to them and these miraculous, amazing things that, that our leaders are saying it's about to happen and it keeps happening and it's really creating animosity between the Egyptians and us, but it's beginning to show a power shift. And, and in Egypt, Pharaoh was seen as the greatest God above all the other gods. In the Egyptians' eyes, Pharaoh and Pharaoh's son, it was believed that they were the, the, the in-flesh version of Ra himself. Like, this was a god. And so, when the, the Jewish, the Hebrew people, when their leaders were beginning to say, God has told us to, to find a one-year-old lamb who is perfect and spotless and to sacrifice him and take a hyssop branch and take some of the blood and spread it on the doorpost of your house. And when this final most severe judgment comes. The, the angel of death, the, the plague, it will pass over your house if you're covered by the blood of the lamb. And so they did this. And then in that night, there is a wailing and a crying out in Egypt that I cannot imagine. And what had been generations of oppression was ending in one night. And the Egyptians wanted them gone at that point. And they needed to leave in such a hurry that they, that, that they didn't have time to really get things together. And so as they created this festival that they would remember God's huge provision where God set them free from oppression, one of the things that they did is they said the, the Hebrew people did not have time to put leaven in their bread because that would take an extra time they and it, you'd have to wait for the bread to rise with the leaven in it. And so during the festival of Passover, we only eat unleavened bread. 
And there's other parts of a dinner that they'd actually celebrate, but I want to I wanna share with you a couple of the instructions from Exodus chapter 12. And so we're, we're going to go to the Exodus 12 passage, if you can pop over to that. Um, it says, for seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. This is during the festival of Passover. I brought that specific passage out because I want you to understand how critical it was to them that the people and the next generations remember this incredible deliverance. God saved. Like he saved us from oppression. It wasn't through war. It wasn't through strength. We didn't have warriors rise up from amongst us and overpower the Egyptians. That's not how it happened. It happened by the hand of God. And it's so critically important for our future generations to know about this deliverance that during the Passover feast, nobody's eating leavened bread. And if anyone does eat leavened bread, they're out of society. I mean, that, like, that seems extreme, but that's how critically important it was for them to remember this incredible deliverance that God sent. And in celebration of the meal, there was a lot of different things that happened. One of the things that, hap- that would happen for, for the generations after that first Passover, once they got into their land, there would always be a pilgrimage during Passover where you would go to Jerusalem as a good Jewish person and you would bring with you the one-year-old lamb. And so to begin to see this and, and feel this, this is one of those times it's like everybody's coming to town. And as they're coming in, everybody's bringing in with them a lamb. And so all of the disciples, they grew up with this. Every year, Passover would come, Jerusalem would be filled. They would be there, their family would be there, and they would be going into the temple. And I apologize, I know that this is kind of tough for especially our animal lovers in here, but they would bring the lamb in and they'd bring it into the temple and they they would lay it down and they, they would actually be instructed to press their weight into it. Because this offering, it was to remember Passover, but it was also for the forgiveness of sin that through faith they believed God would forgive and they would press their weight into the lamb as the priest came and killed the animal. And you have to remember, we're talking about thousands of people entering into Jerusalem and into the temple at this time. Thousands of lambs. The smell, the sound, the sight, the pools of blood that would be filling the temple at this time, it was something that would stick with you in your memory for a long time. Passover was an incredibly important deal in time in their society. It was so important that they would take money from the treasury that was reserved for feeding families who had no food. It was so important that if families didn't have the money for the wine that they were supposed to have at Passover, they would take that money and use it to purchase wine for the families because everyone had to celebrate this Passover because they wanted to remember this incredible provision, this incredible act of God. And we have to impress it to each generation that our God is a God who saves. And so the cups, just to tell you a little bit more, during Passover, there would be four cups that they would have during the, their Seder meal. And the, the first cup that they would have during the night was considered the cup of sanctification where, where God would bring, it was to remember that God would bring them out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And this is important. I'm not just going through the cups to give you a history lesson, but I want to give you some better parameters because we 
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we have text that talks about the last supper that Jesus had with the disciples. And we can actually pinpoint through that information which cup it was that Jesus lifted up and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And so it wasn't the first cup. The first cup was the cup of sanctification that, that he was going to bring us out, that God was going to bring them out from the burdens of the Egyptians. It wasn't the second cup. That was the cup of plagues to remember that God acted in very specific ways to defeat the Egyptian gods and deliver them from slavery. It was actually the third cup. It was the cup of redemption that Jesus lifted up. What was known as the cup of redemption and that, the saying that they would say as they, they lifted up that cup during their Seder dinner, during their Passover dinner, it was, they would say, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And that's the cup that when Jesus lifted it, it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I want you to make the connection that the disciples, when Jesus is taking the, these Passover pictures, and the, the, you know, they saw, they were in the temple, all of the lamb, all of the smell, all of the sacrifice, all of the blood, all of the work, that all of society stops around this one moment where remember this epic moment of salvation where God saved us from Egypt. He's now dialing in. In all of these pictures, these phrases that Christians are used to, saved by the blood of the lamb, we think of Jesus. They thought of Passover. Passover was a picture of what was to come, that was fulfilled in Jesus himself. But I think that our society, we understand and we have a hatred for oppression. And that's good. We should hate that. But we don't understand and we don't have a hatred for sin anymore. We have a very high tolerance for sin. Now hear me clearly, I'm not giving you license, I'm not encouraging you to find sin in someone else and go, hey, you're terrible because you do this, and it's different from the sin that I like to do, so I'm going to get in your face about it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having a hatred for sin in your own life, in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own addictions, in your own hangups. I'm talking about, do you hate the things that God hates and love the things that he loves? Do you hate oppression in the world more than you hate sin in your own life? Passover, it ended oppression for the Hebrew people. But what Jesus did ended sin for his people. It was the answer for sin. It was the forgiveness that was necessary. And that is a bigger deal than oppression. Oppression is a symptom of sin. But sin in our own life, how do we feel about it? How do we engage in it? This is also one of the reasons why we make such a huge deal about Easter. Easter is the answer for sin. And I hope you come in here ready to celebrate. I hope you recognize the importance and the power of Easter. And it's amazing that even people who have been far from God and far from the church for a long time, they still feel a compulsion to be in church at Easter. And so we want to seize this moment because God has a word for their life, no matter how far they've been away from him for however long. And so it's an opportunity that we want to grab. It is an important time. And so it's important enough for us when we see these times where we can bring someone back into church, we're going to make time to invite. 
We're going to make time for the conversation. We're going to go across the street. We're going to talk to the coworker. These are times where we need to exercise and show the importance. I, th- I think it's amazing that during Passover, they were like the entire seven days is blocked off for very special activities. We, we do some s- special stuff on Easter. We, if you're really spiritual, you get some Good Friday going on as well. But we don't have seven days in a row. Uh, and I'm not saying we need to necessarily start that this year, but I, I'm contemplating. I'm like, man, other times in biblical history, they had 30-day parties. They had seven-day parties. We are missing out. We were born in the wrong generation for the party when it comes to church, in my opinion. And so the Passover, the importance that was there, the meaning of the cups, the fourth cup, by the way, just for the people who are, who are curious, um, is the cup of praise. And they they drink it and they sing a hymn celebrating what God has done. Um, And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God was a common phrase that was in that hymn that they would sing, which corresponds in verse 30 uh, uh, when Jesus was saying, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives to pray. And that kind of connects in, okay, that's what they just did. They just finished the fourth cup as part of the hymn when they were there during that time. I also kind of just find it noteworthy that I, you know, after four cups of wine, I might understand why the disciples were falling asleep in the garden. <laughs> I mean, that, maybe that's just a little earthy and basic, but I can, I can understand them a little bit better. It wasn't just late in the day. They, it was a requirement. There's four cups that were part of dinner. And that last dinner, kind of as we get to that, I know I have not only been preaching for six minutes, so we're just going to go till I'm done whenever that timer Um, It says I have 24 minutes. I guess it's okay if I have 24 minutes left. That's right. All right, so the Last Supper. So the Passover is the foundation for the things that were set up and instilled in the Last Supper. They were eating that Passover meal. And before the Passover meal, before that Last Supper with the disciples began, Jesus already set a tone in the air. This was the night where Jesus took the position of a servant. The one who was... God in flesh, the one who everything that has been created has been created through him and by him and for him. He took the job that the Hebrew servants refused. Hebrew servants wouldn't wash feet because if someone's foot touched something that was dead, it would make them unclean. And so it would get pushed down to the furthest, lowest servant, preferably a Gentile servant who didn't care about that. And as the disciples gathered, Jesus took the position of a servant and he washed everyone's feet. It it about blew Peter's mind. Peter was like, you can't do that to me. And Jesus was like, well, if I don't do this, you won't have any part with me. Not only did he wash Peter's feet, but he washed Judas's feet, the one who would betray Jesus later. This is the tone that Jesus is setting before that last supper. Even the one who doesn't deserve it is still going to receive grace from God whether or, not they re- whether or not they respond to it. So with that demeanor where he set the air that I'm going to take the position of the lowest, in verse 14 of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, it said that when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, listen, He said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I'm going to pause there for just a second because first of all, it's it's so interesting that he says, I've eagerly waited for this moment. 
Especially if you look back to say, you know, Jesus has probably been waiting for this moment since Genesis 14 when he had the interaction with Abram, when he saw, you know, the beginning of communion to the end of communion. That Jesus has been looking forward to this moment because this is the night that he's going to be betrayed. This is the final battle for victory that's going to, to happen. And he says, I will not eat. It again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And the disciples' minds had to be spinning right here because first of all, they would have been like, no, Jesus, you're not gonna suffer. Like everyone loves you. The crowds would never allow it. Like God is doing so much through you. The power of what God's doing is not gonna stop. You're not gonna die. It's, it won't happen. But Jesus already knew. He already knew who was gonna betray him that was in the room. And in fact, as he was Giving out the very first communion, he told Judas, go and do what you have to do quickly. Judas didn't think that Jesus knew. I mean, I'm sure his blood pressure shot up, like started sweating a little bit on his forehead. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, and, and he just booked it out. Because, you know, if Jesus told Peter what Judas was about to do, Judas was probably sure Peter would stab him. Like, I mean, Peter was a man of action who loved Jesus. And so Judas got out and he went and he collected the money to betray Jesus, to tell the leaders where they could find him at. But I want you to see something about the love of Christ. He died for people who would reject him. He died to save those who could never earn it. And within the issue of salvation, I know that all of us have within us a beating desire to know that we get things right with God. To know that when we meet him one day, when our life is over, that we will be welcomed into heaven, into the kingdom of God. And there is an idea that runs around in so many heads that says, if I do enough good to outweigh the bad that I've done, then God will let me in. It's not going to be, when you enter, when you are on the doorstep of heaven, it's not going to be about how much good outweighs the bad. Because you could never do enough good to achieve holiness on your own. The question that needs to be answered is, have your sins been covered by the blood of the Lamb? Just like at the Passover, it wasn't about how good a household was or how bad a household was. It was whether they were covered in the blood of the lamb. And what scripture teaches us is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And not because of the good things that you have done, lest anyone could boast, but because of the grace of God. You will be covered by the blood of Christ. Jesus' body and his blood was spilled so that he could pay for the sin that you owe. And when he here institutes communion, when he institutes this supper together, in verse 17, it says, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Jesus apparently will have a meal with us in heaven. There will be eating and drinking in the kingdom of God. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it, them to, gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says right then that when we take communion together, it's, in, it's an act of remembrance of him. And verse 20 goes on to say, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant 
and my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus completed what was required. He completed the payment that was required for your sin and my sin. He is that lamb that we would have had to take into the Passover celebration in the temple. He died to pay for what we owed. And we as a church, when we celebrate communion, we remember what he did and who he is to us. So if you're a believer in Christ today, if you say my faith is in him, I don't think that my good works could ever get me into heaven, but I know that his grace and his love pays for my sins then you're invited to take communion with us. There's instructions that are given to the early church. I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. This is the apostle Paul speaking, and he said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, we just heard that part. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant, and, and My blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We heard that part. This is the important part I want you to see in this passage. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To receive communion is to make a statement about God. It's to make a statement about the fact that Jesus is going to return. And so if you are not a believer in Christ, if your hope is not placed in him, communion is not something that you should take because that's not a statement that you want to make with your life. And I believe in authenticity. If you're not there yet, don't pretend to be there. That's okay. It's better to be where you are. But if you're a believer in Christ, that is a statement that you should be making. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Paul is writing and he's giving the Corinthian church instructions about communion and our attitude and our position when we take it. And he says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? There is a personal element that by taking communion together with your church, you're saying we all belong together as the body of Christ. As the Apostle Paul writes in other places, he says, we are the body, like each one of us, a different part of it, but we all operate as one. To take communion is to say that we belong to each other. Verse 17 says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Communion is an act of saying we are a church Together, we belong together. And you might say, well, Paul, I am from Indiana and I do not belong to this church. Should I take communion here? We are all part of the same church. Like, I don't care if it's Cape Christian across town. I don't care if it's Union Chapel in Muncie, Indiana. Whatever your home church is, we all belong to the same church that serves Christ. So if you're here with us today, you can take communion with us today. And finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, verses 23 through 28. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty or responsible for sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. He's addressing sin in the church. People who are playing the Judas game. Like, I'm in the room, but I'm not in the moment. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to receive the bread and I'm going to receive the cup, but I'm not thinking and I'm not believing in the direction that the church is believing and thinking.
And so if in your life you've allowed an addiction to creep back in, and it's one thing to be fighting against a sin, and it's another thing on being, being in the process of planning to sin later, to just be okay with it, to just let it live in you. And when God has given you the vision to see this is a problem in your life and you allow it to fester and stay there and you continue to act like everything is okay, the Apostle Paul is writing to that situation and saying, you should examine yourself. He actually goes on in the passage to say, some of you guys are sick and ill right now because you're testing the Lord on this. Not my words, that's his. And he, he creates and he, and he describes it as a very serious issue. And in so many ways, I believe that we've been taking it lightly. Band, if you guys will make your way up, I'm going to begin to close this thing up. We've been taking the issue of communion lightly. We haven't seen it with the importance. We haven't seen many areas with the importance and value that they deserve. Um, I started off the service kind of joking about kids and spouses and other things that require our time and work and attention. Um, I have a car, and so I have a privilege of getting to fix it when it breaks. I I guess I'm also cheap, so that's how I get that privilege. Um, But I had to, this last weekend was kind of a fun weekend. Uh, My wife was out of town with another wife, having a great time staying in a hotel, and they, they were enjoying a mom's weekend, mom's night out. And I had all of my four kids by myself, and I'm gonna change the rotors and brakes on my vehicle by myself. And somewhere in there, I lost my patience in my view of like what's important. And I'm out there in the Florida sun at like one o'clock, still working on this stupid car because the lug nut halfway broke. And so I'm figuring out how to get that off. And I'm ready to quit. I'm ready to scream. I'm ready to say things the pastor shouldn't say. And out walks my son, who I'm like, I'm not getting you a snack. My hands are covered in grease. And he's like, I just want to sit with you. I'm like, I don't have patience to deal with kids and work on cars. And he starts asking me how it works. And he actually says the statement. He's like, dad, when I'm a dad, will you teach me how to do this stuff? And it's like, oh, my heart melts. And my kid kicks me in the teeth for this, like just fixes my face, fixes my attitude. And I went from like hating what I was working on to, okay, I'm going to make this project take a little bit longer so I can like soak in this moment. And it's an amazing thing. Like, when, when just something happens that shifts and helps us to see something different, it's the exact same circumstance it was a couple minutes. I'm gonna show you a picture. I got a picture of my son in one of the next slides. Um, you can see my hand. <laughs> you can see his hand. And he's checking out all my tools. I let him lower the jack when we were all done. And there's this great moment that I could have just let my attitude mess up because I had every excuse to be ticked off. I'm tired. I'm hot, I'm sweaty, I haven't eaten lunch yet. It's two o'clock now, leave me alone. I can experience something that is valuable and meaningful and something that I'll, I'm gonna hang on to those pictures forever, man. I'm gonna hang on to that memory forever. In the same way with our relationship with God, it's like we can just move through a moment and never experience that moment and that touch with him and from him. But you can pause in the middle of this difficult and busy week. During this time of communion, you can examine your heart. And if he shows you something that needs to be fixed, man, even right now, lay it at his feet and experience his love and forgiveness. Because you serve a grace-filled God who invites you to a table, who invites you to a family, 
who invites you into a church that is a body that will care for you, walk along you, and be with you. You're invited to all of these things. Will your heart show up? If the ushers would come forward, here at at Gulfside, we receive communion by taking both pieces of the elements and returning back to our seat and waiting for everyone to be served so that we can take it at the same time as one family. And so you'll take a piece of the bread and you'll take one of the cups and you'll return back to your seat. Um, There's also one station back towards the back that's a self-service station on the table and there's two up here at the front. But before we move towards the elements, let's just pray. Father, would you search us and know us? In our heart, do we see you as a great God who saves? In our mind, do we know you as a good heavenly Father who will never leave us and never forsake us? Has our heart turned towards sin and allowed it? Father, restore to us a vision and a purpose for holiness in our household and in our life. Help us to love what you love and hate what you hate. And as you show us something, we lay it at your feet right now and ask for forgiveness and courage and strength. And we thank you that you invite us back into communion. You invite us back into relationship. You you never departed from us, even when we felt like we were running for you. And for that, we are grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray.